You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. Are there new treatments that can stop or reduce liver damage from hepatitis B? Here with an update on hepatitis B therapies is Dr. Scott Kotler, Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Section of Hepatology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Hello, Dr. Kotler. Hello, Jay. Well, let's get right to the topic. What is hepatitis B and how prevalent is it? Well, hepatitis B is a virus that infects the liver. And worldwide, there are about three to 400 million people who are infected. In the U.S., the estimate is more like 2 million. And many of these people are really immigrants from areas of the world where the disease is endemic. How is a disease transmitted? Well, in areas where it's endemic, it is either vertically from mother to a baby at the time of birth or between young children at play who share blood. In the developed world, it's horizontal or between usually young adults through sexual activity or sometimes through drug use or other means of parental exposure. What are the consequences of untreated hepatitis B? Well, it can cause cirrhosis, complications of cirrhosis and liver failure, and liver cancer. And hepatitis B is really a major cause of liver cancer worldwide. Can we intervene? Can we treat these patients and avert those long-term outcomes? Well, we know we can treat them. We now have really a number of drugs. Hepatitis B has been exciting because of all the new drug development. We can suppress viral replication. We can perhaps change the natural history in some cases. And I think the big question is, who should we be treating? And long-term, can we reduce this risk of liver cancer? Can you give us any hints about whether we can or cannot? What is the problem with the data? Well, there is one good study in patients with cirrhosis showing that treatment with lamivudine, which is one of the older oral agents, can reduce the risk of complications of liver disease and can reduce the risk of developing liver cancer. What we need is more prospective data in patients who are not cirrhotic to prove that we can do this. But I'll add that there's good data that suggests that virus level is associated with risk of progression of the disease either to cirrhosis or to liver cancer. That comes from the REVEAL study. So the big question is if we can suppress virus level in people who are not cirrhotic, can we prevent these outcomes from occurring? Well, why don't you give us some principles about the goals of treatment for for hepatitis B then? Sure. Well, we have to to break the patients up in terms of E-antigen positive and E-antigen negative patients. And if you look at the E-antigen positive patients, there's really two groups. One is the people who are immune tolerant. If you acquire the disease at a young age, at birth or in childhood, people tend to go into a long-term immune tolerant phase. And in that state, we have high levels of viral replication, but normal ALT levels and no significant liver damage. Those people, at least currently, we don't tend to treat. However, over time, as people age, the immune system kicks in and they go into an immune clearance phase where there's ongoing liver injury, and over time, there can be progression to cirrhosis. So we tend to treat these E-antigen-positive patients who are in the immune clearance phase with a goal of achieving an E-antigen seroconversion. 
When that happens, they lose E antigen, they become E antibody positive, and virus becomes undetectable, and then we would treat for a consolidation period after that, and then stop therapy. And we want to help that patient to gain immune control so that the disease becomes quiescent. So that's the E antigen positive group. For the E antigen negative patients, we have, again, we can look at two different categories. One is the people who are in the low replicative state who have had an E antigen seroconversion, generally spontaneously. And if they have quiescent disease, we tend to monitor them. We know they're at risk for liver cancer and sometimes for activation of their disease. Some of these people will develop viral mutations, either a pre-core or a core promoter mutation, and then the virus starts to replicate again, and they develop what's called E-antigen-negative chronic hepatitis B. And this is a later phase of disease associated with more inflammation, more severe fibrosis, cirrhosis, etc. So we want to target our, our therapy on the E-antigen-negative patients on these people who have E-antigen-negative disease. And in that setting, the goal of treatment is suppression of viral replication. And, of course, when we suppress the virus, our other goal is to treat the liver disease and to reduce inflammation and either to inhibit fibrosis progression or even now we have some data that in some cases we can get regression of fibrosis if we achieve viral suppression. Do these principles hold true for cancer development? Well, that's a very good question. I, I mentioned the Liao study earlier in the cirrhotic or, or early pre-cirrhotic patients. We don't know for certain whether it holds true for non-cirrhotic patients. We do know that in hepatitis B, unlike other causes of chronic hepatitis, that we see liver cancer develop in the absence of cirrhosis. And so one of the hopes is, and one of the things that needs to be proven, is that if we can suppress viral replication, that perhaps we can reduce this risk not only of liver disease progression, but also of the development of liver cancer. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me today to discuss update on hepatitis B therapies is Dr. Scott Kotler, Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Section of Hepatology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Well, Scott, why don't you just give us an overview of the types of medications, how we classify them, and then we can go into a little bit more detail about each. Okay. Well, the first drug that was tried and true for hepatitis B was unmodified interferon. After that, we had the development of the oral agents, the first being lamivudine, the next drug being adafavir, and then after that came entecavir. That was in about 2005, at which time pegylated interferon was approved for treatment of hepatitis B. And then we had, more recently, telbivudine and finally tenofovir being approved for the treatment of hepatitis B. So what we have at this point is pegylated interferon, and then we have nucleoside and nucleotide analogs, oral agents, that are, are very potent in terms of suppressing viral replication. Do we use these individually, sequentially, or in combination? Right. Good question. Well, there was a couple of big studies looking at combining lamivudine with peg interferon. And while it improved viral suppression, it did not increase seroconversion rates. So combining an oral agent with peg interferon, at least to date, has not been shown to be particularly beneficial. Now, with regard to the oral agents, if you look at the field of HIV or even hepatitis C, we want to use more than one drug. The interesting thing in hepatitis B is that, at least for treatment-naive patients, who don't have viral resistance, there really isn't any sound data to suggest that using more than one drug is more effective than using a single agent. 
And a couple of the drugs we're talking about, Intecavir and Tenofovir, have very low resistance rates. So in general, if you have a, a treatment-naive patient and you're going to use an oral agent, you can start with one potent agent that has a low rate of resistance. If you have a patient who develops resistance to a drug, we really do want to avoid serial monotherapy. So we tend to add a drug that doesn't have cross-resistance as opposed to substituting. Well, how do you recognize resistance? Well, that's a difficult issue. We can do blood tests, and you can send your sample off to a commercial laboratory, and they can test for mutations that are associated with resistance. But clinically, what you tend to see first is an increase in the virus level from the nadir. And a virologic breakthrough is defined as a one-log or tenfold increase in virus level from, from that nadir. And that should tip you off to one of two things. Either the patient is not being adherent with their medicine, which is a common cause for virus levels to go up, or they have developed resistance. Having gone through this, we talked about the naive patient and the low level of resistance in the community at first go, and how patients do develop resistance. But truly, what about the patient who has failed one therapy? Do you go back into a different nucleoside agent, or do you go to an interferon product? Well, that would really have to be considered on a case-by-case basis. I mean, there are some potential upsides to interferon and in that there isn't an issue with resistance, that at least with one year of treatment, the seroconversion rates in the antigen-positive patients are a bit higher than with the oral agents, although if you look at the oral agents, you get catch-up over that second year. But yes, in, in a patient who fits the, the profile and is motivated to take interferon, that would be one approach, or you could shift to another or add another oral antiviral drug, again, that doesn't have cross-resistance in order to achieve viral suppression. So you have, you have options because we have so many different agents now. Not only resistance is an important issue, but side effects of medications. What are the side effects and what should one look for in choosing a drug? Well, pegylated interferon has the side effects that we know from hepatitis C. and People can get flu-like symptoms and cytopenia and uh, fatigue and depression, etc. Although it doesn't seem to be as marked as we see in patients who have hepatitis C. With regard to the oral agents, in general, they are very well tolerated. There are some specific things that I want to point out, though. One is with regard to adesivir, that there is a small rate of nephrotoxicity, about 3% over five years in people with compensated liver disease, but higher rates reported in people who have decompensated disease. So that's an issue for, for concern. Now, adesivir and tenofovir are very closely related agents. Tenofovir is more potent, but seems to have a very uncommon association with nephrotoxicity, although there have been some reports of Fanconi syndrome. A lot of the data comes from HIV patients who may have other reasons for renal insufficiency. Another agent that I mentioned just in passing, telbivudine, has an association with a myopathy, and in the range of about 5% of patients will get a CPK elevation. So that is something to keep an eye out for. Beyond that, these pills, these, these oral agents, again, tend to be very well tolerated and really have very limited side effects. Can you give us, uh, our listenership, a sense of the duration of therapy before going to consolidation? Well, if you look at the data with the oral agents in e-antigen-positive patients, again, you're trying to achieve a seroconversion, about 50% will develop a seroconversion over five years. 
So, you know, there is a cumulative rate 20% at one year and going up from there. And generally, people would treat for a year after seroconversion. So even in the e-antigen-positive patients, we're looking at fairly long-term treatment. In the e-antigen-negative patients, if you discontinue therapy, most will relapse. A majority, a vast majority will relapse. So at this point, we're talking about fairly open-ended suppressive therapy in that e-antigen-negative group. That's fascinating. What is it about hepatitis B that you would like to share with our audience that really sticks out in your mind? I think one of the most important things is that we have to recognize the populations that are at risk. And the new CDC guidelines suggest that all people who have come from an area of the world where the prevalence exceeds 2% should be tested. If you look at the map, if you look at the global map, there are areas of the world where up to 10% or more of the population is infected. So if you're in your office and you see a patient from Asia, from sub-Saharan Africa, from South America, or someone who's an Alaskan Eskimo, or from the Mediterranean area, these people need to be tested. We need to recognize this disease, and then, of course, we need to recognize, we need to test their family members, any sexual contacts, etc. So the first thing to do is to identify the people who are infected, and then to recognize that we have a whole host of new treatments that we do have good therapy with, I think, fairly limited side effects, and we need to get these people evaluated and considered for antiviral treatment. I'd like to thank my guest from the University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Scott Kotler. Dr. Kotler, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. Thank you. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Register today for the AGA Spring Postgraduate Course held in conjunction with DDW 2010. This course will take place May 1st and 2nd in New Orleans, Louisiana. Learn what's on the horizon for a wide spectrum of digestive diseases and how you can incorporate these latest advances into your practice. In addition, obtain practical information on how to handle difficult diagnostic and treatment issues and challenging endoscopic situations. Learn more and register at www.gilearn.org pgcourse. The American Gastroenterological Association was founded in 1897. Today, it's the largest GI society in the United States. Our members are physicians and scientists at the leading edge of researching, diagnosing, and treating disorders of the gastrointestinal tract and liver. The AGA is known for advancing both the science and practice of gastroenterology. Discover what the AGA could mean to you. Visit www.gastro.org.